Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihera Zozan. On October 9th, Turkey launched an offensive into northern Syria, dubbed Operation Spring Peace, in which Turkey provided air and artillery support to thousands of Syrian rebels in an assault on an area governed by Syrian Democratic Forces, or SDF. At the onset of the operation, Turkish President Erdogan stated, quote, The main aim of the operation is to take out PKK-YPG terror organizations from the area and to facilitate the return of Syrian refugees, end of quote. Syrian Kurdish People's Protection Unit, YPG, are the main component of the Syrian Democratic Forces, but the Turkish government claims that the YPG is an extension of the banned Kurdistan Workers' Party, PKK, which has been in conflict with the Turkish state since 1984. Ankara launched its assault two days after a green light was given by Donald Trump, in which it announced that the U.S. would withdraw its forces from the area. Scores were killed in this Turkish offensive, and more than 300,000 people were displaced before a U.S.-brokered ceasefire went into effect and a Russian-Turkish agreement followed. This week, we bring you an in-depth conversation about the worsening situation in northeastern Syria, the future of the autonomous administration of North and East Syria, also known as Rojava, and the role of regional and international players in this conflict. Shahram Agamir spoke with Dr. Cengiz Gurnish, Associate Lecturer in Politics and International Relations at the Open University and I started by asking him about the latest developments in northeastern Syria following Turkey's incursion in that region. Uh, the situation is very unstable, as you can imagine. Uh, attacks by Turkish-backed groups on the SDF, the Syrian Democratic Forces, are, are continuing since the ceasefire agreement. So we cannot say that the ceasefire is holding completely. Turkish army and the Turkish-backed groups targeted the area between uh, Ras al-Ain and uh, Tel Abyad, and Turkey controls a 30-kilometer-deep region alongside the border between the two cities. Turkey's ob- objective was to control a 30-kilometer-deep region alongside the entire border and expel the SDF fighters in that region. The agreement with Russia prevented a full-scale Turkish invasion of all the border regions, but in exchange, the SDF uh, forces agreed to withdraw from uh, the border 30 30 kilometers south of the border, and a Syrian army has been stationed uh, on the the border. Turkey and Russia are supposed to start joint patrols in a 10-kilometer region inside Syria. Before the Turkish invasion, Kurdish-led SDF controlled almost a third of Syria, and they continued to control much of that area. But now the situation has been uh, complicated with Turkish-controlled area and the regime soldiers along the border with Turkey. So it, it's uh, yeah, it's quite a complicated map. How did we come to this point that an agreement between the Russian President Putin and Turkish President Erdogan apparently became the decisive moment in this military confrontation. What led to this agreement and what are the main points stipulated in this agreement? We kind of mentioned that, but are there any other ones beyond 
military withdrawal of uh, the SDF forces. Let's look at the period just before the attacks first, and then I will go through the agreement and what led to it. Both Russia and, and the Assad regime were tacitly encouraging Turkey's invasion of the Kurdish-controlled regions. And this this has become more obvious after the US and Turkey agreed to a security mechanism on the border. The SDF was abiding by that agreement, and Russia and, and the regime felt that a possible reconciliation between the autonomous administration uh, in Rojava and, and Turkey, which the security mechanism could have led to, could empower the autonomous administration as well as create grounds for a longer U.S. presence in Syria. So in order to prevent that, they tacitly encouraged Turkey and indicated that they would be fine with a Turkish operation that targeted SDF. Russia wanted the SDF to be left alone against the Turkish army and that situation could have forced them to seek an agreement with the Assad regime and accept terms that they would not have previously. Uh, the Trump administration gave the green light to Turkey's invasion and decided to withdraw with US soldiers from Syria. So Russia's plan worked perfectly and Turkey's threat and actual invasion precipitated the US withdrawal and left Russia as the main power broker. Concerning the main points in the actual agreement, it is quite similar to what the US was offering Turkey with its security mechanism. The main difference is that Turkey was not going to control the territory inside Syria and with the Russian-Turkish agreement, at least for now, Turkey is going to keep the control of the areas it has uh, captured. The agreement requires the SDF to withdraw 30 kilometers south of the border and there will be a regu there will be regular joint pat military patrols in a 10 kilometer area uh, south of the border. The patrols will not include the city of Kamishli, which is the main Kurdish city in Syria. There is talk of making the me this mechanism permanent and renegotiating the so-called Adana Agreement, which was signed between Syria and Turkey in 1998 and entailed uh, close cooperation towards combating the PKK activities in Syria. And PKK, that's the uh, Kurdistan Workers' Party that has Kurdistan been... Kurdistan Workers' Party. Yes. Cengiz, what were the domestic as well as regional international factors behind the decision by the Turkish government to launch this invasion? And what is Mr. Erdogan's endgame in Syria, as far as you can tell? One would think President Erdogan must have abandoned his earlier plans for Syria and his rather ambitious plans for Turkey to become the regional hegemon. Yeah, uh, let me begin with the domestic factors. The governing nationalist coalition that President Erdogan is heading, this is the People's Alliance uh, formed by the ruling Justice and Development Party and the Nationalist Action Party. And it's been, it's been going on since 2016. Um, it's also been supported by a number of smaller nationalist parties. This coalition did not do very well in the last elections, local elections held on uh, 31st of March 2019. Uh, they almost lost all of the main cities to the opposition candidates, including Turkey's biggest city of Istanbul and the capital city of Ankara. So the talk of an invasion of the Kurdish-controlled areas was on the agenda for more than a year and it has the objective of consolidating Erdogan's nationalist coalition within Turkey and gain the lost electoral support. 
the economy has uh, also been doing quite poorly for the past two years, and the only card that Erdogan can use to bolster his support is stirring the anti-Kurdish sentiments inside Turkey. This policy has been quite successful so far at consolidating nationalist votes behind Erdogan and marginalizing the, the Kurdish movement. Secondly, uh, the issue of the Syrian refugees in Turkey and what to do with them. This has emerged as one of the main domestic policy areas in Turkey and as one of the factors that led to the loss of support for the government. Uh, Erdogan wants to create a safe zone so that he not only destroys Kurdish autonomy in Syria, but also sends the Syrians in Turkey, Syrian refugees in Turkey back to Syria, to safe zone that it, he wants to create. And that will enable him to to relieve the pressure that he's feeling under. Uh, concerning the regional and international factors, I mentioned the tacit agreement or encouragement of Russia and Assad regime to the Turkish invasion. So in a letter that uh, Assad regime sent to the UN in September, he described the SDF as a separatist terrorist organization, which kind of uh, echoes or echoes the Turkish description of the SDF. This came after the agreement for the security mechanism between the US and Turkey and was the first time such a description of the SDF was used by Assad regime. This was widely kind of interpreted as a sign for Turkey to intensify its aggression against the SDF. And this is what exactly happened in the following weeks. So the aim was to force the US withdrawal. And as soon as that happened, Russia started the process of reconciling the SDF with uh, the Assad regime and getting them to cooperate. Um, but now the U.S. decision to withdraw has kind of been reversed. And since then, there is a kind of a talk of a, a smaller U.S. presence in, in Syria, in their resort area, to guard the oil. We need to wait and see how this affects the course of future events. If the U.S. does not totally withdraw its forces, then the Russian attempt to work towards an agreement between the Kurdish-led administration and Syrian state is kind of complicated. If I was to just briefly talk also about Erdogan's end games, initially the end game was to overthrow Assad regime and replace it with a government led by politically and military groups that Turkey supported, which were mainly connected to the Muslim Brotherhood. But since 2015, it became clear that this is unlikely to happen. And then the focus turned on to limiting the gains that the Kurds were making in Syria. And in order to do this, Turkey needed to increase the areas it controlled in, inside Syria. And as a result of that, there were several uh, operations and invasions of Syrian territory in the north and northwest of Syria. In recent years, Turkey's policy shifted to preventing Kurdish consolidation of their autonomy and establishing themselves as an important political actor in Syria. Uh, preventing Kurds consolidating their autonomy in the post-conflict Syria will enable Erdogan to show his policy as a kind of a success story, and he will be able to sell that to the domestic audience. And it also enables Erdogan to keep the pressure on Assad and he wants to extract uh, concessions from Assad and he wants the groups that Turkey supports has a base and a role in the new Syria. 
but the desire to dominate Syria is still there. But I think Erdogan is now aware that his chances of doing that are not uh, as strong as, as, as they used to be. So he's kind of prepared to settle for an agreement. So at this point, it's fair to say that the factors that are driving this invasion are ostensibly domestic. Yes, they're mainly domestic, mainly. but also there's the regional dimension too, because he wants to, he wants Turkey to have a strong hand when it comes to negotiating an end to Syrian conflict, and he wants to determine the course of actions, if you like, uh, and the final outcome. And but the driving factors are are domestic because mm. his electoral support is declining and his popularity is declining. The economy is not doing that well. There's a lot of hostility to, to towards Syrian refugees, so he needs to appear as he's doing something. Let's talk about this region of uh, northern Syria. After taking control of large uh, swaths of land in northern Syria, following the pullout of Syrian regime, regime's forces in 2012, the Syrian Kurds announced their intention to implement a policy of what they called democratic confederalism. The area attacked by the Turkish state and its Syrian allies was a de facto autonomous region named Democratic Federation of Northern Syria, also known as Rojava, which means the West in Kurdish. If I'm not mistaken, Roughly 4 million people live in this region, or they did. I'm sure there are a lot of displaced people as a result of this invasion. Can you describe to us what this self-autonomy and democratic confederalism mean, and how does it function, particularly in a conflict zone? The emergence of the of Kurdish de facto autonomy dates back to July 2012. And as you mentioned, when Syrian states forces withdrew from Kurdish areas. And that act left the Kurds in charge of the area that the areas that, that they populate. And they then set up uh, their own administrations. And this uh, autonomous administration was uh, known as the Cantons of Rojava, which was uh, established in January 2014. So the formal, the first formal structure was in January 2014. And since then, it, it has undergone uh, several stages of development. Uh, since September 2018, uh, the area is known as actually the, the Autonomous Administration of Northeast Syria. And it's abbrevi abbreviated as the NES, NES, um, so the FNS isn't actually used anymore, which shows how fast things have been changing. The Kurds are the main force behind this autonomous administration, but it's not organized as an ethnic autonomy. Uh, it, it, the region it inspires to be a multi-ethnic entity for all cultural groups in northern Syria. The blueprint for the model uh, originated from the PKK's leader, Abdullah Öcalan, who is in prison in Turkey. The idea was first introduced in March 2005 and, and was proposed as an alternative uh, to a Kurdish nation-state. It seeks to organize Kurdish communities across the Middle East and achieve a degree of national unity without creating a Kurdish nation-state. Uh, 
So democratic confederalism is conceived in terms of deepening democracy and is described as a system to spread democracy to the grassroots level. It was a uh, kind of a unifying framework for the different social and political organizations established uh, by the Kurdish movement broadly to represent different segments of Kurdish uh, society. So it seeks to build institutions such as people's councils from the local level upward and organize the Kurdish community through such a structure. This, uh, they would say, ena would enable the Kurds to build their self-governing communities and connect these self-governing communities to a higher level representative congress. The Kurds would be able to organize as a nation and obtain their national rights within the ex existing states in the Middle East. And a democratic representative body will bring together all of the, all of the local and regional level Kurdish self-governing communities. And in, in May 2005, uh, an organization called the, the Union of Kurdistan Communities, uh, which is abbreviated as the KCK, it was established. And this is the institution, uh, this is the organization that's designed as a pan-Kurdish entity to bring together Kurds as, uh, as a national community within the existing state boundaries. Now, the second part of the solution is the democratic autonomy. And democratic autonomy refers to autonomy of a national, of national and religious identities, their rights to preserve their differences and originality and obtained, obtain their freedom. So it concerns the nature of relationship between um, the Kurds and the states within which they live. And and seeks to accommodate Kurdish rights and demands within the territorial integrity of the existing states in the region. It is kind of seen as an, a way of limiting the power and authority of the central state and empowering the Kurdish communities and other ethnic communities so that they, they take a greater role in making decisions that concerns their community. In Syria, uh, there is an ad autonomous administration for the whole of the Northeast, but the entity is divided into seven regions, and each of these regions are divided into lower level administrations. So it's about decentralization of political power and about increasing the involvement of the various groups that live in that territory. When the Syrian state forces withdrew in Kurdish-populated regions, the Kurds were left alone and, and building their autonomous administrations became kind of a, a necessity. Uh, the conflict with ISIS uh, did cause significant loss of life and instability in the region, but despite that, the Kurds were able to develop their representative institutions and manage their own affairs. So the conflict context has not deterred the Kurds from practicing autonomy. The Rojava's model of self-rule and direct democracy has focused on issues of social and environmental justice. It's a radical project and it has been compared by some observers to the Paris Commune or uh, the councils in the 1917 Russian Revolution, the anarchist and liberation socialist organization principles in the Spanish Revolution, and even the Zapatistas in Mexico. Do you see such similarities based on what you have just described to us? 
Yes, the model is based on uh, direct democracy and self-organizing organization of uh, communities and people's involvement in all levels of political organization and decision making. Communities are involved in the management and kind of finding solutions for their own political and social problems. Uh, Öcalan's model um, from which this practice of autonomy uh, is derived from draws from a number of left-wing progressive political traditions and seeks to limit the power of the state and empowering the community. So in a way, if I had to explain it in a one in one sentence, it will be limiting the power of the state, empowering the community is sort of this is the essence of this project. It is also based on rejuvenating ethnic and religious communities and creating a system where these communities enjoy a degree of autonomy and have decision making power over their own community affairs. And they also contribute to the decision making concerning common affairs. So it's about facilitating the existence of ethnic and cultural groups, uh, as well as being a novel way of managing ethnic and cultural diversity in the region. Uh, the similarities with the Zapatistas in Mexico are actually quite easy to see, especially the use of local councils and cooperatives and the emphasis on the development of a social economy based on the needs of the people. For decades, Kurdish polity has been dominated by a nationalist discourse and a desire to establish a Kurdish nation-state across the borders established by the 1916 Sykes-Picot Agreement. But the Rojava administration, as you mentioned, is not an ethnic-based authority, but rather a body that has assumed responsibility for the administration of a certain geographic area. The basis of the Rojava claim to authority is not the name and interests of the Kurdish community, which is very different from which was the dominant discourse among Kurds for many decades. How will this experiment affect the Kurdish nationalist project across the region? Initially, the political program of Kurdish national movement in Turkey uh, was cons constructed around the idea of Kurdistan being a colonial of the states in the region and, and the proposed solution was to overthrow the authority of these states to liberate Kurdistan. So it was a national liberation movement and the national liberation discourse is a left-wing and Marxist inspired discourse. So it's not like a traditionally nationalist movement. It has never been like that. You know, there are movements which, nationalist movements, which emphasize the greatness of the nation and, you know, this long history and so on. But the Kurdish movement has been about liberating, ending the repression the Kurds have been facing and liberating Kurdistan. Uh, during the early 90s onwards, following the collapse of the Soviet Union, the national liberation discourse began to lose its appeal and it gradually was replaced with a with the current program, which is structured around the accommodation of Kurdish rights within the existing state boundaries. What is happening in Rojava is a kind of a reflection of this new project, new program that the Kurdish movement in Turkey has been developing since early 90s, we can say. So this model is 
currently the dominant model in Turkey and Syria, and it seeks to solve the Kurdish question without resorting to nationalism and creating a nation state. This approach came about as a result of the developments on the ground and the realization that creating an independent Kurdish state in uh, Greater Kurdistan was not possible in the current political environment. So after that, the focus turned on uh, the accommodation of Kurdish rights within the existing states. And one would think that this approach, this new approach would receive more acceptance by the states that keeps Kurdish territory, but because it, it does not involve the breakup of the territory. However, so far the existing states have not been very keen on recognizing Kurdish identity and rights uh, and national demands. So it is kind of about recognizing and achieving Kurdish rights, but it's not exclusively for the Kurds. It has also tried to include other groups, other minority groups in Northeast Syria and and also create structures through which all the different groups in that region work together and cooperate and live together in this new new polity. Well, you can see that the states in the region, Syria, Turkey, Iran, and Iraq, they would be hostile to this project, not only because of the involvement of Kurds and their aspirations, but also because it's a radical project. It's something that goes yeah. against the systems in place in these countries. It goes against the whole rationale of these states, their political structure, their socioeconomic structure. Yeah. It kind of calls for a reorganization of the existing states along a decentralized uh, structure. And that is something that the states don't like to do. Also, it, it also calls for recognition of pluralism and you know, ethnic, cultural, political pluralism in these countries. And again, these countries are highly authoritarian states. You know, they have the state form has been highly authoritarian, uh, quite hostile towards minorities in many ways, and does not wish to you know, give any anything away to minorities. And also when it comes to the issue of women, it's advocating for women's rights, it's also advocating for responsible approach to the environment. It's an environmentalist movement, if you like. So all of these things go against the convictions of these political classes in these countries. There also has been criticism of the um, Rojava project, if you like. Some groups within the Syrian opposition to the regime are resentful of uh, PYD, the main force in the Rojava administration. They are accused it of not confronting the Syrian regime. They have also been accused of suppressing the civil society activists and other rival organizations in the area that they govern. Finally, there is this criticism of forced conscription and use of child soldier. Yes, I have heard criticisms uh, like that. And the administration have itself actually responded to many of these criticisms uh, concerning the conscription of soldiers, they made agreements with the UN and, you know, they signed the international uh, declarations and legal documents that protects the 
children's right and they they said that they will not take anyone under the age of 16 to their structures but they do not allow anyone who is who is younger than 18 to actually be involved in a, in a fighting so they have taken precautions like that concerning the repression of the opposition i mean there are sort of claims and counterclaims, and it's difficult to see exactly what's happening. There are some Kurdish political parties which were sort of the rivals of the, the PYD, and they claim that they, their activities have been restricted and they cannot organize their people, they cannot organize demonstrations and things like that, and some of the leaders have been arrested. But there are cases of protests against the Kurdish-led autonomous administrations. Uh, so in a way, it's not, it doesn't seem to be totally correct. It's not like the totalitarian entity that these critiques of the model have been presenting or has been arguing is turning into. It's a war zone. I mean, we should not forget that. And the threat that ISIS have been posing to the Kurds has meant that you know they have to be very, very careful. They have to monitor a lot of things. And frankly, uh, the Syrian regime and the Turkish state. Exactly. It's not as if they have been sitting idle and waiting for this administration to rule the way they want to. I think people often forget that functioning democracies are not easy to build and it, it takes a lot of time. So the people who are actually managing these autonomous administrations, you know, they didn't have a lot of experience. So they're learning, they're gaining experience now. And, you know, I'm not saying that everything is perfect, that everything that the autonomous administrations do or have done is perfect. But I kind of don't also believe that it is a, a kind of a totalitarian, repressive regime that that they are trying to build. And, you know, they have been quite open to including many different groups within Northeast Syria. They have reached out to the Arabs, the other minorities, the Christian minorities. They are working together with, you know, these groups. And, and essentially, it's a decentralized system that they want to build. All of that kind of goes against the description of a totalitarian massive regime. So that is Dr. Jengiz Gurnish speaking with Shahram Aghamir about the latest developments in northeastern Syria following Turkey's incursion in the region. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. We'll hear more after a break.
Genghis, it seems like the population in Rojava in northeastern Syria was predominantly Kurdish before the Syrian uprising began in 2011. And Turkish promise to return 2 million mainly Arab Syrian refugees to this, to this area would mean diluting the region's Kurdish makeup. In other words, Mr. Erdogan and the Turkish government would be using demographics and population transfer to achieve their political goals. Given the fact that many Turks have concerns about the continued presence of 4 million Syrian refugees in Turkey, could this become a factor in the next election in Turkey? Yes, you're right that Syrian refugees were in Turkey. Most of them are Arabs and a very, very tiny proportion of them are actually Kurdish uh, Kurds who are from the east of the country. And the issue of Syrian refugees in Turkey was one of the main factors in the last local election. And as the economic situation in Turkey worsens, and it's been worsening in the past two years, the hostility towards the Syrian refugees has been on the rise. The opposition has used the issue of issue to pressurize the government, especially the use of Arabic Arabic language signs in Turkish urban centers. It was like a you know was a big discussion topic. Um, in a way, Syrian refugees are kind of accused of Arabizing the public space in Turkey's or urban centers. And they are presented as ungrateful beneficiaries of Turkish hospitality. The government wants to counter the opposition's move by targeting Kurdish autonomy in Syria and advocating a creation of a safe zone to house the refugees there. It wants to kill two birds with one stone, uh, if you like. It wants to pacify the opposition and also consolidate its nationalist base through targeting the Kurds in Syria as well as in Turkey. There is an international dimension to this project as well. As you know, the issue of Syrian refugees and what to do with them has become a key international issue and, and EU countries have been quite concerned with the arrival of a large number of Syrian refugees and the possibility of more refugees arriving has been a key concern for many European governments. Erdogan keeps threatening European countries with opening the border gates and letting Syrian refugees travel to Europe. This is a tactic which worked well for Erdogan and, and, and the EU was quite muted against many human rights violations Erdogan's government has been committing in Turkey. So now Erdogan is saying unless the EU gives more money, and start bankrolling the reconstruction of North Syria under Turkish control, he will open the border gates and let Syrian refugees come to, to Europe. So in a, in a way, he's blackmailing Europe to support his ethnic cleansing of the Kurds in Northeast Syria. Kurds have been warning of a possible ethnic cleansing in this northeastern region of Syria and Rojava area. Based on what we saw in, in Afrin last year when Turkey invaded that region, do you think these concerns are credible? Uh, yes, definitely. Um, so far, around 300,000 Kurds mainly have, you know, have been displaced in that region. And they have gone to other regions in northeast Syria, but some of them have also gone to north, northern Iraq, to Iraqi Kurdistan. And... It's a 
threat that Erdogan has been uh, continues to making and the experience in in Afrin shows that it's a possibility that that the Kurdish population in that area are removed. Mm. Uh, Erdogan, yeah, I mean, he was quite open about it in the UN General Assembly. He he held up a map and showed which areas that he wants to control, and his control of these areas will actually mean that the people who are there will be removed and. That areas that areas that he showed that he wants to control corresponds to the, the areas that Kurds actually live. So he wants to, in effect, do ethnic cleansing of the Kurdish population, and but he wants to present that as a kind of a move towards addressing the concerns that Turkey has with regards to its own population of Syrian refugees. President Erdogan's Justice and Development Party, AKP, the ruling party, has been accused of um, tacitly supporting the Islamist groups in Syria throughout the civil war. A veteran Turkish journalist has called Turkey's intelligence agency the midwife of jihadist movement in Syria. There are reports that the Syrian rebels, they are named Syrian National Army, who comprise the ground force for the Turkish invasion of Rojava in northeastern Syria, are mainly Islamist fighters with Salafi and jihadi conviction. What is the makeup of these people? For firstly, the tacit support Turkey has given to ISIS and other Islamist group is a is a long-running issue. Many of ISIS fighters received medical treatment from Turkey, and almost all of ISIS foreign fighters came to Turkey first, and then they traveled to Syria. Uh, they used to call it the jihadi highway. So. People flew to Istanbul and then they went to Gaziantep, which is near the border with Syria. And after a few days there, they crossed into Syria. Uh, the numbers were very high, so it is inconceivable that Turkish authorities didn't know what was happening. There are news reports that show the fighters Turkey uses in Syria were in fact with ISIS before and have now joined Turkish-backed Syrian National Army. So they have pictures of them inside ISIS and then now. So they have evidence, they present evidence to back these claims up. Some of the groups such as Ahrar al-Sharqiyya, they advocate very similar ideology to ISIS. And what is also noticeable from the reports is the anti-Kurdish sentiment of these groups, which is something shared by the majority of Islamist groups in Syria. So there, there are videos that show torture and in some cases the execution of civilians and they use the same ideological frames that ISIS and other Islamist groups used. So they often refer to Kurds as infidels and they attack Kurds' secularism and advocacy of women's rights, which they obviously see as being anti-Islamic. Often the Islamist groups in Syria are shown as being each other's rivals or being in a kind of antagonistic relationship with each other. But what we see on on the ground is that there is a a lot of cooperation among them. I will give you an example. Um, The ISIS leader, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, he was hiding in Idlib, which is under the control of Islamist groups that were rival to ISIS, which is an area that has a, a strong Turkish military presence. 
Other high-ranking ISIS leaders are also believed to be located in Turkish-controlled areas. Turkey has been very keen to present the Syrian groups it reports as moderates, but the evidence emerging from the region indicates that they are not, and in fact that they are, there is very little difference between them and the groups like ISIS. The United States and Turkey had been sharply at odds over the YPG militias in Rojava, while the U.S. military officials regard the group as uh, an essential partner, the Turkish government states that Kurdish Democratic Union Party, PYD, and their YPG militias are closely linked to PKK, the uh, Kurdistan Workers' Party that has been at odds and is in conflict with the Turkish state since 1984. How would you characterize the U.S.-Turkey relations now in the aftermath of the decision to withdraw the U.S. forces from the area that was uh, governed by the uh, autonomous administration? We should mention that Earlier this week, the U.S. House representatives passed a resolution recognizing the Armenian genocide. I mean, Turkey and and U.S. have long established relations and they are allies as part of NATO. But the relations have not been what they were in recent years. There are a number of reasons why this is the case. Firstly, Turkey does not trust the U.S. as much as it used to. Turkey feels that the U.S. did not strongly put a strong opposition against the coup attempt in 2016. Turkey feels that U.S. does not take its security concerns in Syria into account. And Turkey is concerned that the U.S. did not end its support for the YPG, the, the Kurdish militia, that Turkey accuses of being same as the PKK. And Turkey also bought the S-400 air defense systems system from Russia, and in turn the U.S. took Turkey out of the F-35 aircraft consortium. So these issues are all kind of creating a lot of tension in the Turkish-U.S. relations. And it's been quite tense for the past few years, and it seems like this tension will continue, especially now that the Congress recently recognized Armenian genocide as a genocide. There are lots of issues there which are combined and Turkey is keep emphasizing the YPG being same as the PKK and US by supporting YPG is actually supporting the PKK. But the US is aware that the, the reality is not as simple as Turkey puts it. and and the YPG and the, later on the SDF have been central to the international efforts to defeat ISIS, which was one of the main terrorist uh, threats in this, this century. I think the US does not take what Turkey says very seriously, and they know that Turkey has a kind of a vested interest in saying that the only objective Turkey has uh, no matter how it tries to to show is the repression of the Kurds inside Turkey, but also in Syria. And that's been the key f- factor in keeping Erdogan's um, alliance with the nationalists together. Yeah, a lot of the Turkish foreign affairs actions are actually have a strong domestic dimension. Even before the recent Turkish invasion of northern Syria, Trump administration had taken steps that 
in effect and practically shored up the Syrian regime and enforced Russian plans for Syria. The U.S. government has effectively ceded this ground to Russia and the Astana process, which encapsulates the agreements made among Russia, Turkey, and Iran. Moving forward, what role do you think the United States will be playing in Syria? It is difficult to know at the moment. And at the moment, the U.S. commitment to the Kurds and peace in Syria is not very strong. The U.S. interest in Syria is kind of conceptualized in the context of combating ISIS and other jihadi groups, and also Iran's presence is a concern. But at the moment, the U.S. does not seem to be committing itself long-term to Syria and finding a a credible long-term solution to the conflict in Syria. Beyond the issue of ISIS and Iran, the U.S. could not develop a strong, credible position And we know that their long-term relations with the Kurdish forces in Syria will be kind of, they want to continue some sort of relationship, but it's not clear how. And they want to continue this relationship in the context of uh, combating ISIS and similar groups. You know, the U.S. administration doesn't have one united position. Pentagon, they want to continue, but... Trump doesn't want to continue, doesn't want to commit to long-term plans in Syria. And it's very difficult for us to see how that will develop in future. Would it be too far-fetched to think that this Astana process, agreements among Russia, Iran and Turkey, had already sealed the fate of uh, the Rojava experiment? In other words, the Turkish invasion of this region was only the last act in this drama. Do you think Russia, Turkey, and Iran had already agreed on bringing an end to the uh, Democratic Federation of Northern Syria and the SDF governance of that area? And this was only a matter of time before this plan that came out of Astana process could be implemented? All of these powers, Russia, Turkey, and Iran, uh, all of them are against the continuation of the of the autonomous administration in its current form. So they would like to see it ended, especially uh, the U.S. support that the autonomous administration enjoyed uh, was a key concern for Russia as well as Iran and Turkey. So that was the main concern for the Russians, and that's why they were not very keen on trying to mediate between the, you know, the federation the autonomous administration and the Syrian state. You know, there are differences between Russia, Turkey and Iran when it comes to the accommodation of Kurdish rights. And Russia is not as hostile to Kurdish rights as Turkey and as Iran are. And Russia wants to have some sort of a Kurdish, or they support some sort of a Kurdish autonomy you know, some kind of autonomy for Kurds in Syria, provided that that autonomy does not challenge the integrity of the Syrian state and its political unity. And in, in the current form, the autonomous administration is, you know, they have their own territory, they have control over that territory. That is something Russia isn't willing to accept. And so part of Astana process, the Kurds were excluded from the 
you know, Kurdish representatives were excluded from that process. But it's a bit difficult to imagine that without the inclusion of the autonomous administrations, administration, the peace process would have succeeded. This was until, you know, until the U.S. support. If the U.S. had continued this support and if they provided some sort of a security umbrella over, over it, then at some stage they had to incorporate the autonomous administration into the new Syrian state. But now that support has been removed. Now Russia knows that the you know, autonomous administration is in a very it's not in a very strong position, so they cannot really negotiate so much. And they will be keen to use that weakness to get them accept a deal that they would not have accepted had they had the U.S. support. Let's elaborate on that. There were some analysts who had been suggesting that the most rational solution, if you like, was for the SDF and the Rojava administration to negotiate self-administration with the Syrian regime under Russian auspices. Now that buckling under the Turkish offensive, Syrian Kurds and SDF have come to an agreement with the Russians and Syrian President Bashar al-Assad's government, how does that look moving forward, given the fact that neither before nor after the 2011 Syrian uprising has the Syrian regime had any intention to share power with the opposition? Given such a backdrop, would it be realistic to expect the Syrian regime to recognize Kurdish aspirations and institutionalize Kurdish rights? You know, in order to create a stable Syria, they will have to recognize some level of Kurdish autonomy. But whether that will go far enough for the Kurds, I doubt that. The regime and Russia want to keep the territorial integrity of Syria intact, and that means the autonomous entity that the Kurds have been building will not be recognized in its current form. And the regime is offering cultural autonomy. This is more like a Russian plan uh, supported by the regime. And they don't want to accept territorial autonomy. The other point, or the other, other issue is, uh, is the status of the Syrian Democratic Forces and whether they will be able to find a deal uh, where Kurdish-led entity, uh, well, the, where the SDF will be will become part of the Syrian army, the new Syrian army, the regime needs the Kurds on its side actually, because they don't really have the means to defeat, or they have almost defeated many of the opposition groups. But Idlib is another, you know, important. Uh, area where they will have to fight and also the Turkish-backed groups. So the regime cannot take on all of these on its own. I think this is an optimistic uh, perception maybe, but I think they will have to find uh, some kind of agreement with the SDF and they need the Kurdish support to, to be able to kind of continue ruling, uh, but obviously they will have to reform. Again, uh, given the history of the Syrian regime, that seems to be a bit optimistic, as you mentioned. Uh, they don't seem to be in, in any mood to share power. They haven't been. And, and, you know, when we talk about Kurdish rights, we should have talked about this. Can you talk a bit about the predicament of the Kurds in Syria 
in this clash of identities, Syrian Kurdish interests ultimately were subordinated to the larger Arab nationalist interests in Syria. There was differential and unequal incorporation of Syria's Kurds into the Syrian state. That seems to have been a key feature in Syrian politics up until the uprising. Can you talk about that? The history of Kurdish oppression in Syria is quite long. The Kurds were deprived of their basic rights in Syria and their attempts to gain rights were not successful because of the authoritarian nature of the Syrian state. Kurdish identity was not recognized in Syria and various policies to weaken and further marginalize the Kurds and Kurdish population were pursued. For example, citizenship was removed from Kurds, some section of the Kurds, who were seen as not natives of Syria. They had come from Turkey, they settled in Syria, but at that time there wasn't an actual border between Turkey and Syria, so it was all part of the same, same country. So they, they used such population movements to undermine the Kurds claim to be natives of Syria. There are many other instances in which Kurds were targeted. There was the Arab Belt project, which sought to remove Kurds from the agricultural land and replace them with ethnic Arabs. This was initiated in the early 70s, but it was not fully implemented. So for a long time, the Kurdish population was seen as a threat to the Syrian state and it was repressed. You know, Kurdish grievances that could not be addressed before the uprising began to be expressed when the uprising started. But the opposition uh, was not willing to accommodate Kurdish demands and include them in its political program. And as soon as the conflict was militarized, the groups that had a, a lot of hostility towards the Kurds gained ground, which pushed the Kurds to rally around their own political and military organizations and defend themselves against attacks that they were facing. So it's not only the Syrian state which kind of marginalized and pushed aside the Kurds, it's opposition as well. And in Syria, throughout the past eight years, the Kurds found it very difficult to get their rights recognized by these two groups and that's been reinforced by the pressure from Turkey and internationally the Kurds have not become part of efforts to get their rights addressed by the international efforts or initiatives to end the conflict. Dr. Cengiz Gunesh is an associate lecturer in politics and international relations at the Faculty of Social Sciences at the Open University and author of three books, including his forthcoming, The Political Representation of Kurds in Turkey, New Actors and Modes of Participation in a Changing Society. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. To listen to the extended version of this interview, please visit statushour.com.
That's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. Mira Nabulsi is our senior producer. Our media partner is a Status Hour podcast and Jadalia Ezin. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, and thank you for listening. Just your own, the love, do not go. Wait, 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 wait.